Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here at episode 81. I'm Liam. And I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. Feels like the first time in a while we've been back talking amongst ourselves, recording an episode. We've been releasing lots of freebie conferences once. Yeah, I've been enjoying the conference um, releases, though. So that's great. Thanks for um, thanks for that, Lisa, for going down yeah. there and doing that. And thanks to the Victorian Department of Education for allowing us to do that because it's been I've really enjoyed that. Well, they're like yeah, yeah, this like is the only this is the only time I get like I feel I'm I'm a listener to the show now because I wasn't there. I, <laughs> I, I, I emailed you, Lisa. I think I said it's like I get to listen to a whole new episode because I have to do the recording, then usually listen to it once or twice to re-edit them. It's like listening to a brand new episode I know nothing about. It's very exciting. And, you know, it feels really grown up too because, like, you you know, there's clapping in the background and it feels like <laughs> it's sort of some sort of big, big con- – yeah, anyway, I won't go on. I just have been enjoying that. Well, uh, so uh, the episode this week we're going to be crossing to an interview with Jenny Hutchins, who's the CEO of Big Fast Smiles. We're going to be talking a bit a little, a little bit about uh, that organisation and the work they do with young children, um, and also about um, some incidents that happened at Big Fat Smile that actually led to uh, an investigation and a prosecution. And talk about Jenny's um, experience as CEO during that time and how Big Fat Smile responded to that. Um, but we wanted to just quickly touch on a bit of news that came up in the sector in the last uh, week. So uh, earlier on this week, on Monday, the Shadow Education Minister, Amanda Rishworth, announced that uh, if re-elected, Labor would institute a policy of ending the practice of free giveaways or freebies or all that kind of stuff uh, that um, I think I t- I've called them enrolment inducements, which is a very, uh, very you know, highfalutin term, but basically that process of, you know, where some centres will give families free iPads or pay their mortgage for a week or, or in some cases, <laughs> send them off on holidays, which is one of the one I saw in um, in the Courier-Mail, I think. So Labor's basically said that's an inappropriate use of taxpayer funds and they will be stopping it. Um, so I might go to you first, Lisa. What was your sort of reaction to this announcement coming out? Uh- Oh, look, before we, we get any further, I just have to say the congratulations to you for getting an article up about this on the on ABC. And can we put the link to that in, in our podcast notes so that everyone can read that opinion piece that you wrote? Because Absolutely. it was particularly well written and oh, very thanks, clear. Thank you. Um, you say that like it's a surprise. Oh, That's sorry. like for a, for a change, Liam. Something oh, you wrote no. was clear. No, it was really good, Liam. I was really pleased. Lisa, you know I can't accept a compliment without batting it away. Yeah, well, stop making me feel guilty because you can't. (laughs) Oh, goodness me, you two two writers, listen to you, having a a write-off right now. Um, Look, the, the thing that strikes me about it is that this kind of thing's been happening forever and ever, and I'm not really sure why the Labor Party has gotten up in arms and about it. But more to the point, like of all, like this is their first policy announcement that they're taking into the election about education and care. No inducements, no giveaways, and it's like really that's your big, that's your big you know, thing that you're going to do for. Yeah, to ensure every child gets access to high quality early education and uh, early education, yeah, it just seems a little bit weird. But what about you, Leanne? Oh, look, all I think is that wherever there's a market, that you have to have these sorts of things because 
you know, it's a market, so you need marketing. And well, that's Liam kind of said in his article, really, didn't yeah, he? I, but, of course, I thought that before I read Liam's article. <laughs> but, Liam, but Liam then obviously reinforced my own thinking about it. But I think it's that simple kind of this is a rort. We, we didn't have a rort alert, by the way. Where's our rort? Rort music, Liam. I still don't and, have it. Episode um, eighty-one, and I still don't have the, the rort alert <laughs> music. Sorry, everyone. So, it, so it's it's a rort, and I guess it's the thing is that it's easy to get get some mileage out of something that's a rort that's going to be stopped. So it is, you know, that that political point scoring in a way that this is a rort. It's going to be stopped, and um, that will be, you know, that that will be an easy move, but. Yeah, as you say, this is not about um, providing access to high-quality early childhood education. This is about stopping the rorts. So, but here's my question is, why is this a rort? So, the, the Australian government, successive Australian governments, the Australian community has decided that early childhood education should be provided in a market capacity. So, obviously, Leanne, I agree with you, this is an appalling use of money, but we have decided that Early education should be run as businesses. So, is this actually a rort? This is the kind of point in the article I was trying to make. I guess is why can you? It's, it's not. I mean, I I haven't read every single fine print on the. It's an ethical on, rort, but if we're yeah, going it's to, an but rort, my, but my, I don't know. Is there fine print in in any kind of agreements um, and contracts with government that says you can't do this? Specifically with the childcare subsidy, or in or in general? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there is, Lizzie. You, you'd know the, the detail better. Look, we're on fine lines about some of the things, like one of the inducements that people sometimes offer is a month-free childcare, whereas they're not actually offering a month-free childcare. They're offering a month where they take the childcare subsidy don't charge a gap fee, and that um, breaks you know, breaks family assistance law because you're supposed to charge all families the same fee. Yeah. And, you know, you could argue that giving someone a toaster or an iPad is working the same way. It's charging a separate fee for different families within, you know, receiving the same level of care. So it could technically be breaking family assistance law. Mm. Yeah. Or... Or even the, the the holiday. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, could, you could you could. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't done the numbers, but you could like send people away on holidays and then not staff your centre adequately. Make them pay. Yeah, get, get the subsidy. I don't know. There's lots of different interesting things you could do there. Yeah, I think. I mean, and I'm obviously being a bit facetious by raising that point. But the point I was trying to make in the article was, if you don't like this practice, this is a business practice. So. I wish people would just have the, the honesty to go, well, I don't like this because actually early education shouldn't be run as a business. But we sort of have this discussion about the tip of the iceberg around marketing and stuff. And my view is, well, if you're satisfied with to for this sector to be run as a business, then it gets a bit problematic, I think, to suddenly go, well, but, but I don't like these particularly business practices. Yep. <laughs> I don't think there's any much to say about that, but yeah, I don't. I, but I still, I still think that in in some ways it's not understood. I, I think the broader community doesn't necessarily understand that, and yeah. I think that that's 
these things are markers of, you know, we have a range of the way that people run early childhood settings, either in the not-for-profit or the for-profit kind of framework. But then this is that, yes, this is that sort of orientation of running it as a business and providing all of the the incentives there. But I'm not sure that the broader the broader community understands that it does have a business orientation and that there are things that come with that. Mm, I think they do. More and more I think people see childcare as a business so that they think, why are they getting subsidies? It's a business. Mm, It's interesting. It might be a discussion to have. No, no, um, let's do a survey. Let's give that (laughs) a survey to the whole of Australia. We haven't done an early education survey yet, maybe down the track. And ask if they, (laughs) they do know that. All right. Well, we'd, we'd better move on to the main point of topic for tonight. We might do a couple of bits of housekeeping, though. So, firstly, we are now, as this episode comes out, I think only two weeks away, three weeks away from the Little People Big Dreams conference in Darwin. We All three of us will oh, be Oh, don't there. tell me that. Yeah, how's your keynote going? That Lisa? means we've got to write, write keynotes and things. <laughs> um, so, as we sort of said the last few episodes, if you are attending, um, we'd love to uh, to see you come up and say hi. We're, we're very nice and lovely people in person, we promise. Um, uh, I think tickets... Yeah, is- can I just say, there were so many people that came up to Leanne and I at the ECA conference and said how much they liked the podcast. Oh. So can and we just do a big, a big call out to all of those people that made us feel really, yeah. really good? And it I'd especially so nice. like to say to the person that asked for every episode to be one hour, 15 minutes, because that's how long <laughs> the commute is. I'm trying really hard with this one to spin it out for you, but can't <laughs> promise. <laughs> I'm happy. Well, they hey, might need some thinking time, some critical reflection at the conclusion of the podcast. Hey, Doctor <laughs> Who's back uh, in in two weeks' time, so I'm happy to spend twenty minutes an episode just reviewing the latest episode of Doctor Who. Happy to pad that out for you. Oh, um, I think we're going to let him do that. Point, <laughs> <laughs> um, gonna have to let him do it one day. Lisa. One day. One day. So. Uh, but interestingly, a lot of people said that what they really like about the show is not the content, not our, our <laughs> research. That's a... Oh, kill me now. <laughs> but they like the fact that we're funny. Oh, my God. Uh, only to some people, I think. Only to some people. Yeah? I think there's lots of definitions I, of the word funny. I didn't think any of us were funny. But <laughs> yeah, maybe to some people. There's funny ha-ha and funny strange. Are we sure you sure you got the definition of which one they meant? Well, needless <laughs> to say, it was very nice, but also the conference was really fun and there were lots of interesting things and amazing presentations from people. So it was a good, it was a good way to spend a few days, wasn't it, Lisa? <laughs> it was. Yeah, but um, so we will be in Darwin uh, for the, which is uh, mid October, so October fifteenth and sixteenth. I think it could be sixteenth and seventeenth. I should have added that to my show notes. But um, if you're not attending and you would like to, I, I imagine tickets are still on sale, and you can go to lpbdconference.com.au, and that's um, being put on thanks to Child Australia, and we're all looking forward to to being there. So as we said, come up and say hi. Um, the other thing is to say we're going to be um, continuing our sort of tradition now of taking the sort of school holiday times off. So there'll be no new episodes for the next two weeks, but we'll be back uh, to in, in two weeks' time with, with some new episodes. But uh, without any further ado, let's have a quick break and then we'll head to our interview with the CEO of Big Fast Smile, Jenny Hutchins. Stay with us. All 
we're back and we're here with Jenny Hutchins, the CEO of Big Fast Smile. Jenny, welcome to the Early Education Show. Thank you, Liam. Uh, Jenny, we're very excited to have you on. Jenny, why don't you um, be great to hear a bit about you and your background and then um, tell us a bit about Big Fat Smile. Thanks, Liam. So, Liam, I joined Big Fat Smile in February of last year. I'm a psychologist by trade with um, all of my work in the child and family space, particularly in the high risk, so domestic violence, mental health, drug and alcohol, particularly child protection and out-of-home care. So I have a complete passion for enabling all children to flourish and thrive. And I was lucky enough last year to get the opportunity to be the CEO of Big Fat Smiles. So Big Fat Smile has about 650 staff. It runs 42 early learning and care, out-of-school hour care, and preschool services, mainly based in the Illawarra, but heads up into the Sydney area and also down to Goulburn. We also run in a part of an inclusion consortia with KU and Gowrie nationally, and we run a child and family cafe, an art space studio, and we have musicians and artists in residence, as well as a few other things like supported playgroups and transitioner schools. So it's quite a vibrant organisation, so it's incredibly exciting to have the opportunity to be part of that. It's values-based and it has a really strong retention rate of staff. 84% of the services are exceeding the rest of meeting. So fabulous. Now that's just showing off. I know, but it's just such a strong commitment to quality. And actually, I think that comes from really well-embedded, very well-retained staff. It's kind of a workforce conversation that we should have at some point, actually. And so low turnover, staff loving to live and work in their community. And Jenny, just for those um, listeners around Australia, the Illawarra region is south of Sydney based around Wollongong, yes? That's right. That's exactly right. You're supposed to say, yes, that's right, Lisa. That's right, Lisa, sorry. um, (laughs) It's a bit of an unusual name for an organisation, like an organisation that's primarily delivering early education and care. Yes, thanks for that, Lisa. So the organisation changed its name about five years ago when it it had moved from being very Illawarra-centric to uh, a broader footprint and they decided to change the name to something that was vibrant and fun and representative of children. I do do know that the name can be quite polarising. However... I was employed to change the culture of the organisation and to drive a positive strengths-based culture, not to change the name. So, Look, I think, yeah, you know, and get any argument from me, I think it's the best name ever because nobody's ever going to forget it once they hear it. So from a marketing perspective, I reckon way to go, much better than being another organisation with child or children in your name. So, Jenny, we asked you particularly onto the show not just to talk about your organisation, as interesting as it is, but also to talk about a particular incident that happened to you, I think, earlier this year. 
Mm. and um, what the organisation's learnings and response for it was. So can you talk, to, start to tell us a bit about what happened? I will, I will. Um, thank you, Lisa. So I, I will start by saying um, Big Bad Smile had been successfully prosecuted um, previously, which I won't go into, but just recently, about 18 months ago, there was... Um, there was an incident at one of our centres where a, a little person, um, we ran an evacuation drill, a fire evacuation drill, and 52 children went outside. It was just after afternoon tea. Um, most of the little people had uh, didn't have shoes or socks on. They followed the evacuation drill process and um, it was perceived the little person's feet were um, received blisters as a result of that. And after a, a long um, investigation, about 16 months, I think, the department in uh, in about May this year, June this year, decided to prosecute Big Fat Smile under Section 1671 of the national law. And that, that section is to ensure that every reasonable precaution is taken to protect children being educated from harm or, or hazard likely to cause harm. So both the centre director, the nominated supervisor, and Big Fat Smile were charged. That's hard. How long had the director been in the service? He's been there since Big Fat Smile's commencement there. So about five years, six years, very committed director, very embedded in the community. So Young, old? Um, Oh, I don't know whether she'd like me calling her young or old, actually. <laughs> um, I, I will say a mature woman, yeah, is very right. passionate about her role. Okay. And was it a shock for you to, like, did you know that they were investigating at the time? Sure. So the investigation started about 11 months after the event and so there were a number of interviews of our staff and an interview of me, a formal interview, uh, where we gave information about the organisation, about our knowledge and understanding of the event. Event, Bearing in mind I wasn't at the organisation at the time, but needless to say my job is to lead the organisation. That was my responsibility. Yeah. And Jenny, they knew about what had happened because of an incident form or had That's the parent right. complained or? No, 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 the parent did not complain. Um, we undertook the, the voluntary disclosure process. It was a, a serious incident. So uh, Big Fat Smile had logged it as a serious incident. And did you have any, you know, like at the time that it happened, did you have any, oh, sorry, you weren't there, but did they have any doubt about whether it was a serious incident? Like, um, it, Because of the child, um, so after the event, the parents sought medical treatment and because of that it's regarded as right, a serious okay. incident under yep. the definition. And so absolutely we um, knew that. The staff uh, were very distressed and maintained um, because the fact that he um, had blisters on the bottom of his feet, that they were upset by that and stayed in very co close contact with the family. And I know when I first met the staff, they were still talking about that and, 
and trying to process it. The child continued, I will say this, the child continued to attend the service and actually increased his days in the in the subsequent time afterwards. So we remained in close contact with the family. And was was it a hot day? Like was he walking across Asphalt or something? Like Above the Bureau of Meteorology Statistics, it was 26 degrees. It had rained in the morning and there was a breeze, if you like. So um, it was 26 degrees. So I wouldn't say it was vastly hot. However, what I will say is um, for the charge to be proven, the magistrate needed to find on grounds that um, we were the approved provider, that the nominated supervisor was a nominated supervisor, that harm had happened to the child and it was a foreseeable event. What she did find was that that she dismissed the charges on the basis of the evidence that we provided and that we'd taken reasonable precautions. So we had policies and procedures in place. We had an exceeding rating for that quality area. We had a clean record of spot checks at that service. With the service continued to undertake um, fire evacuation drills, and as you know, they have to undertake multiple numbers per years per year because each child must experience one on a quarterly basis. We had records of every evacuation drill. We had done. We had reviewed. Um, the incident and undertaken actions after the drill and there were just no data, none, in fact, none across the organisation of any burns or previous burns to a child. So she didn't find it a foreseeable event and on that basis she dismissed it. That must have been pretty exciting. But can I just go back to... Did you, you know, when did you change procedures after it had happened? Like to in terms of not doing drills when children might not have shoes on or Well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because fire evacuation drills must be must be like a real life experience. And it's a should you do a five minute warning, for example? And does that still be, is that still a real life experience? And so, what are the parameters of a fire evacuation drill? And I know the department's looking into this and workshopping this at the moment, actually. So, we, we continue to do fire evacuation drills. We think it's really, really important. And we've, we've, in terms of our fire evacuation bags, We've got socks in there and we've got towels in there. So if we take, we do a fire evacuation or a fire evacuation drill, we know that we've got protective elements that we can roll a towel out on the on the concrete or cement, or we can pop socks on little children. So it's an issue for the whole sector, if you like, to consider and think about how do you manage this in the multiple weather conditions we do get in Australia. You sort of talked about that process of going through uh, the investigation and the prosecution itself, which takes quite a while. You know, as, as, as the person who is the sort of delegated representative of the approved provider, um, what, and, and as you sort of said earlier, having gone through a similar experience, um, recently then as well, what, you know, what's it like being, you know, 
responsible for um, you know over forty centers, and I guess going through you know what's the you know what's it actually like going through that process? <laughs> um, I, in my head, psychologically, what I say is my job as a leader is to provide direction, correction, protection, and order. So how do I provide direction? How do I lead this organisation? There are issues abound. How do I provide correction? How do I protect our staff, our children? And then how do I provide order through systems and processes? So it's a good little sort of mantra in my brain. I, um, Liam, I think I'll answer that besides that comment by saying it was incredibly emotional uh, not not just for the team at the service, but the whole organisation who rallied around the nominated supervisor and said, "We're here to care and support you and your and your team." It kind of halts you at a point in time as well to um, say, "Hold on, we can't keep focusing on our strategic plan. We are going to stop and focus on what we need to do here to respond to this." and assist and support uh, the staff. Um, for the nominated supervisor, Liam, and um, she, wrote, she wrote me a note uh, to say just about the impact of her, about the guilt she felt, the shame she felt, the self-doubt, the worry, the impact of what would a criminal conviction look like for her, what did it mean for her job, what did it mean for the reputation of the organisation and um, the impact on her personally and in her personal life as well and just the trauma and still how that continues to seep through them as a team. So it does have wide-ranging impact. And do you think that... um are there things you do differently in terms of approaching, sort of putting aside the um, the operational changes in terms of how you've responded to the specific incident? But do I guess do you think differently about, um, you know, maybe how the approved provider interacts with the nominated supervisor and particular supports that are operated uh, that are that are offered to the nominated supervisor? You know, I, I think that's one of the huge challenges in the sector is there's these overlapping overlapping legal responsibilities, and the nominated supervisor has a lot of day to day. Of responsibility, and I, I don't think the sector um, uh, even just talks about this enough in terms of how we support yeah. these people who are putting up their hands for these really challenging and difficult roles. Um, you yeah. know, would you say that there's a bit of a different approach to that work with a nominated supervisor now? Absolutely, absolutely, and I think the one thing we must always do is take learnings, and so. Um, what I communicated a lot through the process, uh, we communicated a lot with our colleagues, clearly with the board. The board were 100% behind us. We, we communicated with families and I also went out across the sector just to ask different questions like, do you have issues in SOC policy? We started to look at the different layers in the organisation, such as a person in day-to-day charge and think, who else could where else could we build knowledge and support mechanisms? So we built an audit tool, we built regulation training, and we and it was competency-based regulation training. We come into the services with our audit tool and do audits to stand beside, so it's not punitive, it's absolutely a partnering approach, and look at 
where are the areas we could improve across each service? And we document that so that the um, nominated supervisor has support to be the most compliant as, as they can be. Um, Jenny, it must have made your other nominated supervisors quite concerned about their roles as well. Did any you know, yes. want to withdraw from the role? Yes, absolutely. So we had a number of persons in day-to-day charge um, step back and say, I don't want to do this anymore. A number of our persons in day-to-day charge won't step up into the nominated supervisor role anymore. And we had a number number of nominated supervisors say, oh, gosh, I, I don't want to put myself in this um, environment. I don't think this is for me. It's easier to be in the school system. I, I'm safer in the school system. So that must be um, pretty Jenny, scary. Can I, yeah, can I ask then, like I think there's two, two components of that and as a psychologist I'm sure you have thought through all of these things. How do you create a, a safe and, and culturally sound place for people to take leadership on given that they're the sorts of stresses um, that people are under and then the second the second part of that question because we like two-part questions on the early education show is how did you restore people's sort of confidence in that setting so that they you know said that you sort of indicated that they were quite traumatized by it so how do you restore their confidence okay so the First one about taking on the role or retaining the role, we spoke to them about the support mechanisms we're going to put in place. So I I actually write a newsletter fortnightly to everyone across the organisation and then on the off fortnight we actually have an inside operations communication as well. So we provide absolute support to our staff. What we do know and we do say is, Let's make sure we've got coherent policies and coherent procedures. You follow the policies and procedures and you will be okay. I think the challenge is we're not robots and nor are our children. And so, we, Leanne, our stati- the statistic I quote the most is we provide 400,000 unique care experiences a year. For me, that's phenomenal. And I was just at our Shell Harbour Centre this week. In one year, 18,000. In those unique care experiences, one of them, you've got to suspect or expect that some human error may occur or will occur. So how do we protect our staff and ensure they feel safe? So we've got a, a whistleblower policy. We've got a shout out and up if you're concerned or unhappy with other staff behaviour. We've got cultural development, and then we've got the the auditing processes, the training processes, the professional development, and the very clear focus of our operations manager to work with and support the nominated supervisors. Jenny, what about the fact that like, you've talked about, you know, human error, and I was writing some policies today for a service and I just thought, with the best of intention, the ability to follow all of these policies simultaneously mm-hmm. would be very hard because often, 
you know, you're concentrating on doing, you know, the the evacuation drill and you might forget for a minute, you know, your inclusion policy and, like, I'm not saying you'd forget it, but do you know what I mean? Like you're focusing on one set of, set of procedural policy, you know, needs over another. How do you deal with that? It's it's. It's an interesting question, Lisa, because we we employ people um, of a, with diplomas and certificate threes, trainees, and teachers in a in a group environment to care for our children, and and we expect so much of them that I do worry about: Have we got this right in our sector? Have we got the regulation framework right? Have we got the compliance framework right? Do we provide um, quality to the best quality or quality to the regulation requirement? I, I think these are areas and issues that we should untether and tease out across the sector to understand how best we do it. Do we negatively impact on risky play for children. We're, we're really excited and engaged in nature play, but does that make us vulnerable as an organisation? So how do we provide the best environment possible for our children to flourish and thrive? And I don't think we've got the answer. I wish I did. Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting point, Jenny. That's something as you know, someone who works with nominated supervisors but doesn't have their legal responsibility. That's something I I think is a missing part of the NQF. I think the NQF is fantastic around uh, quality standards for children and providing regulations that keep children safe. But what needed to come alongside that was a significant boost for PD and pay and wages and equity for educators. The only people who can who can deliver those are um, professional educators. Um, so it's interesting that that regulation space is is interesting, Jenny and and. The answer to this question, I know you'll have to be very diplomatic given your role, but, you know, you've sort of talked a bit about how Big Fat Smile has learned from these uh, these incidents. Do you think there's some there's some lessons for regulators as well about how these kind of or how they could approach their work with the sector or how they could approach particularly managing maybe investigating and prosecuting incidents? Uh, so in New South Wales in 2016, there were two prosecutions. In 2017, there were 10 prosecutions. And this year, the, the regulator is yet to update their website on the number of prosecutions, successful prosecutions they've undertaken. So I do get a sense our regulator it has, does have a strong focus on prosecutions. I personally have a strong focus on partnership. I strongly believe that we can continuously improve and learn if we share information, understand the context and learn from each other. And I worry that prosecutions will send underground reporting behaviour and it will actually make people a bit like what I just mentioned about our nominated supervisor embarrassed and ashamed and we'll send them underground and won't share learning. I too worry that our single standalone centres, should this happen to them, they they wouldn't be able to afford it. It's such Mm. an expensive process. Jenny, with that, did you have to brief barristers, et cetera? We did. We did indeed. 
And what about for your nominated supervisor? Yes, so we, as an organisation, we have a commitment to supporting our nominated supervisor. So we offered her to have either connected um, defence or to have a separate um, advisor. But because we both pleaded not guilty, we share, uh, we covered all the legal costs. And but is that is that an option for every nominated supervisor? I don't know. I'm asking that question honestly to all organisations undertake that. What about your parent committees for a running centre? Yeah. And Jenny, do you um, uh, think that um, it, you know, if, she, if, she, if you had been in a standalone centre, do you think that the outcome would have been different? But even before then, do you think that possibly the reason why you were prosecuted was because you weren't a, a standalone centre? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure, actually. I don't know. I haven't asked that question. Um, yeah. Because I, I presume that there's some degree of prosecuting to show the, you know, the seriousness of the role, the seriousness of the law and the regulations, like setting you up as an example, and I presume it's probably, a, you know, it's an easier example if it is a larger organisation rather than a, a small standalone one. Mm. I, I agree, but I think if I was a nominated supervisor, and Liam, you might comment on this too, if I was a nominated supervisor in a standalone centre or I was a parent committee, I would worry. And you look at the number of out-of-school hour care organisations that are standalone within a school setting and it's your PNC running it. And our, our children, 5 to 12, in out-of-school hours care, they've really got minds of their own sometimes. <laughs> There's a couple of things, you know, for me. I think the I think it's great. One of the things I think we don't do enough in the sector is talking about and sharing these experiences. So we have, you know, at the lower end, every service will have a, a, a case of, you know, a compliance breach, even an infringement notice, even an enforceable undertaking. Um, mm. Not a lot, you know, not, not necessarily all go to prosecutions or any of those kind of things, but I don't think we talk enough in the sector about the fact that I, we are human beings working with human beings. These are an inevitable consequence of a sector like this. Mm -hmm. So firstly, it's great to hear you talk about this experience. So talking, you know, sort of, I, I know you sort of talked about this through your discussion tonight, but you know, if you were, if if every other um, delegate of the approved provider, if every other CEO, if every other head of agency was listening to this tonight, you know, what would be your, you know, key sort of message for them about how they should approach working with nominated supervisors and working with complex regulations in the sector? Mm. I think partner with the regulator. I would say up front, and I, I would say, and I've said that directly to our regulator that I believe partnerships achieve more. Um, so I would say that. I, I would say within our uh, within your organisation, communicate, communicate, and communicates more. So communicate with everyone, families, colleagues. Uh, so that they're clear on your expectations and you're clear on their needs so that we're 
we're matching that. As I said, correction, direction, protection, order. It's really important our staff feel safe. And our families rock up every day with the with the view in mind that we will protect their little people and we will keep them safe and they can trust us to do that. So that's our foundation. I think know your regulations, which is why we've really built that into every element of our organisation and every role. Um, Goodness, that was funded PD, so people could oh, know the regulations. I know. Well, it's interesting. It's probably another podcast, but just the cost of compliance really does push up the cost of early learning and care. And how do we, do families really understand that? And even for a magistrate, hearing matters like this, they don't actually, their understanding is is really limited as well, which was our experience as well. So there's a lot to understand. They don't. They don't. When you're before a local magistrate, these matters go before a local court and a local magistrate. In front of the local magistrate, you've got more apprehended violence orders. You've got um, domestic violence before you. You've got lots of drink driving. But very rarely um, do you have a early learning and care provider sitting in front of you in what I call the villain's chair saying, not guilty about harming a child. So they're not that common before a local magistrate. So you're, you're managing that as well, building their knowledge. Yeah. Well, but well, it's emotional. Can I just, and, the other thing I wanted to ask was, do you, you know the prosecution rates in New South Wales? How does that compare to the rest of Australia? Do you know the I, I, I don't because the New South Wales Department hasn't published theirs this year at all, so we don't know. Yeah. We do know there was a jump from 2016 to 2017, but we don't know this year at all. So, yeah, from 2 to 10, um, yeah, but we don't know this year at all. Do the other states and territories actually publish that information? Um, I've got a feeling it might be a New South Wales thing. Yes, no, I do think they. I do think they, they all were, got the right to. It was only you know like eighteen months ago or something that they got the right to, but I don't know if all have are actually doing it. My, I think the last time I looked, I could only find like two or three states that had a list online. Well. Jenny, we really appreciate your time. And as we sort of said, sharing these kind of uh, these stories and approaches with the sector, I think is something we need to see more of. So it's great to see you and Big Fat Smile leading the way. So um, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Liam. Thanks, Liam. Thanks, Lisa. All right. Thanks again to Jenny for joining us. Um, we really appreciated her time talking about what was obviously a very difficult time for Big Fast Smile. But as I sort of said in the interview, I think we don't do enough of this talking about what the, some of the challenges of actually working in the sector is. I think we, we sometimes like to pretend everything's uh, wonderful and sunny and lovely when they're actually really difficult and challenging things to, to get through. So thanks to Jenny for, for joining us. Thanks to Jenny. Yeah. And Liam, it's probably worth mentioning which Jenny um, did talk about after we'd we'd finished talking with her about um, the responses to their employee engagement um, work that they've just been doing the survey and things and I think that that was that's an indicator of that kind of really um, intense work that 
that they're doing as an organisation to build the culture and the values around the organisation and how well that has gone. So yeah, they're clearly, clearly thinking a lot about the workforce, which um, you know can never be a bad thing. All right, well, that's it for another week. As we said, we'll be taking the next uh, two weeks off, and but we'll be back um, whatever the date, two Fridays from now is. Again, totally unprepared with that date, but um, we'll be back with you then. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And from me. And from me. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.